You don't have to be into watching motorcycle sales trends to notice that the average rider is getting older. Think about it, the last time you went to a vent or maybe even grabbing a coffee at Starbucks, gray hair is common, or baldness, I mean, it depends. So what's the problem? Why are young people not getting into riding and why should you even care about this? Well, according to our next guest, if you like to ride, then this will affect you. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Googletech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. We are in a shrinking industry, the motorcycle industry, and the insiders themselves, the OEMs, the motorcycle manufacturers, they're fully aware of the problems, yet they're somehow incapable of acting accordingly to increase young ridership. And this problem is going to affect everything from insurance to new advances as far as motorcycle technology. Now, Robert Pandya has spent a good portion of his life working inside the motorcycle industry for these very companies. And not long ago, he decided to set up a roundtable discussion to look into and possibly find some solutions for this problem. The response was far greater than he expected, with more applicants than he could accept, and in the end, ended up getting coverage from major news media, like the LA Times. Here's Robert Pandya. My 
My name is Robert Pandia, and I'm the founder of the Give a Shift uh, Motorcycle Roundtable Series. Robert, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here with you. Let's start off by talking about Give a Shift. What is that? So Give a Shift started off as a uh, initiative um, to get a few motorcycle industry and, and what I would call like informed enthusiasts together to talk about the state of the motorcycle industry. Um, and I had a really overwhelming response to what was just honestly, it was like a Facebook and LinkedIn post. And we ended up meeting in Long Beach uh, at a location. There was 45 applicants, but there was only room for about 25. So 25 of us sat around for uh, what was supposed to be two hours turned into three hours. And, and we talked through a bunch of different things in the, uh, in the industry. The end result of that conversation was a uh, report that identified five major areas of focus uh, or that, would, that we recommended. Um, uh, there is a full transcript of that conversation. So you could be a fly on the wall for what I think was a very smart, certainly wide ranging, but a very smart conversation about motorcycling and the industry. And then, uh, and there was another sort of state of the industry report that went along with that. Uh, and all that has become available. We put it all on a website along with some other podcasts and, uh, blog posts and things like that. And that's all sitting for free for anybody who wants to go through that at uh, www.motogiveashift.com. It struck a chord with uh, a lot of people. I mean, even the news picked it up. You were picked up in the LA Times and, and they had a quote from you in the Times saying, we're in trouble and there's no silver bullet. And you're referring to the motorcycle industry. Now, the thing is with this, is this is something that we've discussed on this show sort of um, indirectly. The, the subject comes up because I think most people who are into motorcycling are, are, are really aware of, acutely aware of the fact that we are not attracting those younger riders. But this goes much deeper than that. Yeah, it does go deeper than that. There's um, um, it's kind of stay, taking a step back. If we look at the industry right now and, and all business, I would say um, uh, our senior leadership, our young baby boomers, our um, deciding managers generally are uh, Generation X uh, age. And then the people that everybody's trying to sell to and trying to figure out are millennials. And that's that's a challenge. So we have three different generations that are all mixed into motorcycling and we're, we, we need young baby boomers to continue to buy, um, you know, touring motorcycles and, and be that sort of traditional customer. And we need millennials to begin to adopt motorcycling as something that they want to do. And as an industry, it's my opinion, we've generally failed to market directly to Generation X, who are the new empty nesters. They are the uh, people who can make a decision to add a motorcycle to their life, which would, of course, affect the millennial generation. So so this, this challenge is um, it's it's a very sweeping um, sort of statement, all of that. There are brands who are doing a good job and are connecting in a compelling way. Uh, but at uh, too small a percentage to affect things in a positive way overall. Uh, and right now, we're, uh, the ship is uh, sinking because of lots of little holes, not because of one big thing that's going to fix it. Well, and the idea of the Give a Shift program or initiative that you've started up is to try and help at least, I guess, talk through some of this so we, we can air it and, and maybe solve it. And it's kind of interesting. One of the things that struck me with this, and, and obviously I'm interested in it because I'm part of the motorcycle industry as you are as well, 
But I think one of the things that struck me with this was how often do you see an industry that is operating that the people who are, uh, I guess, sort of the beneficiaries of the industry, I don't even know if that's quite the, the right term, but the people who are using the products are having to go back and say, hey, industry, you're failing and, and we think we need to help you. Yeah, I, you know, th- this is a passion driven industry. You know, there's there's uh, we know inherently that there's a certain population of the of the world that is never, ever going to be into motorcycling or they're certainly not going to be into it. Maybe the way that Americans think about or North Americans think about motorcycling as sort of, you know, an, a mix of transportation and entertainment. Uh, and uh, and and that is. Um, that is both our strength and our weakness. Sometimes we can have so much passion and be completely myopic, uh, about what is better in the overall, you know, and, and one instance of that would be like the Can-Am Spider or the Polaris Slingshot. When you look at those products, there are people who are like, oh, thank God there's something that, that suits me. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to tip over. I can learn how to ride. I can be part of this motorcycle community in a certain way. And then there are hardcore motorcyclists who are like, oh, those things aren't motorcycles. It's got a steering wheel. That shouldn't be part of our world. And at the dealer level, both of those things make so much profit for the dealer that if we exclude them from power sports, that money is simply going to go somewhere else. And you're not going to be able to have, you know, all these other varieties of, uh, of motorcycles. And so if we had had that same attitude when side-by-sides came around. Side-by-sides, which largely are holding up the power sports industry, would not be part of power sports dealerships, you know, because ATV guys would say, oh, those have steering wheels. They're not really part of our world. And now those things would be sold at, like, I don't know, Ford dealerships or, uh, or um, you know, international harvester dealerships or that sort of thing. So, so we can be incredibly passionate about the motorcycle industry, about the thing that we love, uh, and uh, sort of turn our back on areas that can help grow the entire category. Uh, and that was really like sort of the, the broad mission of Give a Shift was to let's drill down, drill down into some of those areas uh, and really try and understand um, what various uh, not only products, but what various uh, attitude changes and and processes might help us uh, uh, recover that enthusiasm and interest for uh, for the uh, the whole world of power sports. The findings that we're referring to are from your summit meeting that you mentioned. I think think that was November two thousand seventeen. Yes, it was. That's right. Can we just go sort of over, you know, the, the highlights of that, the the problems, I guess, that were discussed or that were found or decided that they were the major problems with the industry and why it's in so much trouble? Yeah, there wasn't. Um, uh, we talked about a whole lot of different stuff. And so uh, in that report, um, we actually offered a whole bunch of very tactical specific solutions that can be engaged by at the individual level or all the way up to the dealer level. But in trying to say, okay, what are the takeaways? When you start any corporate meeting, before you start the meeting, you want to know what the hell is it we're supposed to be deciding here, right? And so the goal of this um, uh, report was to kind of distill things into into a few different areas. So what um, some of the items that we came up with is we don't have a product problem, we have a desirability problem. So um, in my opinion, there has never been 
a, a bigger variety of more interesting motorcycles at all different levels of displacement and price point and uh, and you name it. Now, you know, maybe Harley Davidson doesn't make a 125cc dual sport bike, but if you're looking for that, there are other manufacturers who can who can supply that. So, you know, looking at the aggregated catalog of products that are available, they're great. There is some really, really great stuff out there. So it's not a matter of just tweaking product in order to increase desirability. The core issue is desirability. Um, so that's one of the things. One of the others is um, the dealership process is uh, it's it's broken. You know, we have some very passionate dealers out there. So I, I don't want to, you know, just say that all dealers, you know, stink or something like that. That is that's not the case. But the process is really, really a challenge right now in dealerships because of the, the business model that they have to work through because, uh, you know, selling a transportation vehicle is, um, you know, there's uh, uh, federal and, and state regulations, uh, national regulations for how that vehicle is sold, warrantied, that kind of thing. So the dealerships themselves, the, mo- the sales model is becoming very difficult to manage. I got a lot of turnover at dealer levels and sales training is not where it should be. And so that, that has become a challenge. Uh, we need to do a better job of creating consumers or riders as advocates. That's easy to say, right? To, to say, Oh, I'm a motorcyclist. So I want to, you know, I want to get other people to ride. But in some of our attitudes and how we talk about motorcycling can actually hurt us. An example there would be um, I've heard in my 25 odd years of uh, being around motorcycling and power sports, I've heard time and time again, uh, people say things like, oh, that's that's a great starter bike. But, you know, someday you'll get a real bike. And, you know, I've heard that, you know, sportsters in the Harley Davidson world or, you know, a, a Vulcan 500 and or a, a you know, like a, a CRF, you know, 150 or a 125 air-cooled four-stroke. Great little play bike. It'll be awesome when you get a real motocross bike. So as an advocate, we may be passionate about the thing that we're capable of riding, but we have to understand that other people aren't there yet. And if you say to somebody, oh, that's that's a great way to get in, but eventually you're going to need to road race or you're going to need to jump a a uh, 70 foot gap at a motocross track, or you're not a real rider until you get on the bike and ride all the way across the country 10 times. That's the sort of thing that makes it very intimidating to be part of our community. Uh, so that, that rider advocacy is a big part of it. And, uh, one of the other ones that I'm most passionate about just through my own career and, and work. And, and honestly, it's, it's the quickest solution to increased ridership is to make motorcycling more welcoming for female riders. Um, there's a lot of lip service to that. There have been some programs with OEMs. There have been a few things that uh, that I've seen out there that are like sort of catering to female ridership. But but this is another issue. It's at the dealer level. It's at the OEM level. Um, it's at uh, uh, non-endemic partnership levels where. Only in, uh, uh, in the U.S. at least, it's about a 14% of our market are female riders. I think that number is probably a little higher because I think that a lot of guys register bikes for their wives or girlfriends to ride. But, uh, 
But anyway, let's just say it's 14 percent is what the Motorcycle Industry Council says. The single biggest uptick in ridership is if we do a better job of welcoming women into our our community uh, and creating communities for women to ride, that right there is going to increase ridership because they are ultimately the deciders in a lot of households. So uh, we said in the report, if mom rides, the kids will ride. And if more women ride, more husbands and boyfriends are going to be part of that and be, you know, and, and going to invest in ridership. So those are, those are some of the points that we, uh, that we hit in the report. And again, that, that full report's available at uh, motogiveashift.com for anybody who wants to read through it. Well, also the, the other one that, that I saw mentioned was autonomous vehicles. And that sort of yes. really struck a chord with me because while we're looking at sales and attracting female riders and trying to figure out the problems of getting millennials and the even the previous generations, they're not the first one in my mind that have been left out uh, as far as the, the marketing goes. But while all that's going on, we can sort of be looking inward. We've got this whole autonomous vehicle thing coming up that seems to be coming online a lot faster than a lot of people have anticipated. And how do most motorcycles fit into that? Yeah, we, we brought up the fact that motorcycles don't fit into the matrix of autonomous vehicles right now because, because there's, you know, there's not the language to, uh, connect with, uh, with autonomous vehicle infrastructure, um, that the, the vehicle with the largest variety of, um, variability is, you know, on the road is a motorcycle. Autonomous technology can, uh, we, have seen, obviously there's been some traffic fatalities and there's been some issues as there would be with anti-lock brakes, with automatic braking systems, with any of this other sort of stuff. Right. So there, you know, I mean, there's a learning curve for that. So that, that is, that's just going to happen. However, for an autonomous vehicle to notice the difference between a scooter and say like a, a Harley trike, right. Um, that's a huge variety of software and development that has to be built for that. The easiest thing to do for all these very powerful lobbies in the, in the car world and in transportation world and that sort of thing, the easiest thing to do is to say, well, we should just cut back on motorcycles. So you can imagine that in a particular state might say, okay, we're going to turn all the diamond lanes or the, or the uh, lane sharing lanes or the ride sharing lanes, excuse me, um, into autonomous vehicles only and thereby exclude motorcycles from those diamond lanes, uh, forcing them into regular traffic uh, where uh, they are going to get into more accidents and some of the benefits of riding a motorcycle are, are washed through. So we need uh, a louder voice in the conversation of autonomous vehicles. We need a company like um, uh, GoPro or Garmin, for instance, to uh, put their hand up and say, you know, here's the dash camera with the built-in frequency for a pinging device that anybody can wear on their helmet or on their chest that will ping to all autonomous vehicles saying, here I am, this is where I am, this is how close I am to you, and this is my closing rate and that sort of thing, uh, and, um, and provide that language so that whether I'm riding my 1946 Chief or my KTM 1290 Super Adventure, I now am part of that matrix. So. So that voice in autonomous vehicles is, is, you know, it's important. I know that AMA and MIC have been sitting in on some transportation board uh, meetings in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, I don't know what the situation is up north up there, but uh, 
if we're not part of this conversation, it's super easy to imagine that we're just going to be uh, uh, cut out of the, uh, the loop altogether. And the point you made about be easy to exclude motorcycles from a particular lane, the, the diamond lane, and get them into other traffic, that's sort of just like a, the first step. Because then after that, then you say, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't have them on the highways, maybe just have them on the secondary roads, and then eventually you just phase them out altogether. I mean, it, it could be the demise of the motorcycle. Uh, it could be in an extreme case. I, you know, I, it's hard to imagine that it'll ultimately be that. There's actually, you know, there's places in America where it's still legal to ride a horse down the street. You know, so um, the legality of it is one thing, but ultimately, the the blame. This is the where the problem will lay. Is the blame will ultimately fall on the motorcyclist. Okay, so the. Um, uh, the autonomous vehicle companies are, are, you know, all the major transportation companies and technology companies, you know, if, uh, if something happens, you know, a fat chance that you're going to, you're going to, uh, win that case, you know, unless there's something blatant, the voices against you are just going to be, are going to be too loud. And, um, one of the side effects of this whole thing is that if I choose to ride a motorcycle Rather than get into an autonomous vehicle, the insurance companies are going to say, well, you're, you're making a more dangerous choice. We already pay higher rates. We already accept that risk to some degree. But the collateral around motorcycling could become so expensive that it, it no longer becomes affordable to be a motorcyclist. So, you know, there's plenty of people who maybe they can afford a Corvette or a Ferrari, to, you know, used Ferrari to actually buy one. But once you price out the insurance, you're like, holy crap, I'm out. Uh, and so that, um, that sort of a thing, we can proactively start to make noise about being part of this conversation because the positives of motorcycling, the reduced wear and tear on the roads, the ability to, to park single person vehicles in a much more efficient way in an urban environment, you know, all that sort of stuff mixed with coming technology like electric motorcycles and, and things like that. Motorcycles can be a positive addition to the entire transportation matrix. And um, and that uh, that argument has to be made in a compelling way by a loud enough voice uh, that's going to pay attention. That in the in the U.S. that really falls on the uh, the AMA, the American Motorcyclists Association. And I, and I look forward to seeing you know, what's happening there and and reading more of those reports. Stay with us. We're going to take a short break and be right back. But coming up, we're going to talk about whose responsibility is this? The public, the industry? Stay with us. IMS Products has been making race-grade hard parts for motorcycles for over 40 years. And it's that experience and their sort of history that's behind their full line of ADV foot pegs that they have on their website at www.imsproducts.com. I began running IMS pegs last year, and I'll tell you that as soon as I stood on those pegs, I could feel the difference. And then since then, I mean, the, the handling capabilities with the wider stance, the traction that I get from the pegs, I mean, I can't say enough about them. IMS puts all the work into the design before they offer their products, and it shows in the performance of the pegs. 
added widths without sacrificing your foot angles for your shifter and your brake. That's really important. And a lot of uh, inexpensive foot pegs that you find just won't have them. And they certainly won't have the material that these things are made with. The material is so tough that it's likely going to outlast your bike. And as I said, it's warranted for life. www.imsproducts.com. Drop by and have a look at the line of foot pegs they have. And don't forget, drop our name when you're there, Adventure Rider Radio, so they know it's working for them. Off-Grid Moto is motorcycle soft luggage. Original designs, made in the USA, designed and manufactured in the same building. And because it's all under one roof, they can do repairs, make changes and modifications quickly. And Off-Grid Moto was founded through the love of motorcycling and gear, quality gear. And their bags are just that. They're made of tough 1,000 denier uh, fabric, a two-layer water-resistant coating. So the water-resistant layers consist of a, a DWR water-repellent coating on the outside and on the inside, a polyurethane water-resistant coating. They've got a, a waterproof bag coming soon for it, they tell me. So what we're talking about here are roll-top bags. And the one great thing about that style is that they expand with your needs. So if you have little in them, you cinch them down. If you go shopping or you're packing for a trip, they expand upward. It's a great thing about this style luggage. They're large capacity and they're just really sweet looking bags. They use a pass-through system that uh, allows multiple attachment points and carrying when you're off the bike, which is really nice if you're going into a hotel room or even setting up your camp. Drop by their website, www.offgridmoto.com. And when you deal with them, of course, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.offgridmoto.com. And that link is also on our website. Well, as far as desirability, going back to the, the first one you mentioned there, if manufacturers are now having trouble creating this desirability, what's the answer? I mean, is GiveShift sort of looking to the public to say, hey, we've got to sort of get in there and do this? Or or are you thinking that maybe, or, or that it is the manufacturers that, that are going to have to take the initiative? No, it's definitely more of us as a community. You know, a, a manufacturer's job, and I trust me, I, I'm sitting in a house that was paid for by working for manufacturers. You know, I, I, I appreciate what they do. Their job is to sell stuff, and their perspective on that selling of stuff is generally three to six months. You know, it's like quarter by quarter, uh, and that's how they get measured. Um, it takes a an incredible leader within an OEM to see further than just sales and marketing goals, to invest in that future. It, it's, it's very difficult to continuously justify to your higher ups who are just looking at bottom lines or a, or a CFO who's just looking at financials and, and to say that, oh, we're investing for something that's going to pay off in 10 or 15 years. That's really hard to do in the transportation world because it's like, you know, because of sales goals and, and being what it is. So, so it really comes down to us uh, as riders and enthusiasts um, to force the hands of the manufacturers to some degree to, to, to help pay attention and to continue to back initiatives that are actually going to uh, create that change. Um, so again, advocacy and the female ridership, if, if those things start to work together, um, if we, if uh, a landowner, for instance, who would initially say, no, I don't want people to ride on my, you know, my hundred acre patch of dirt because of the liability. If you were to figure out a way um, to form a club 
to um, uh, to be endorsed by the AMA or to find a way uh, to allow for rider training of basic dirt bike skills or to create like a family camp opportunity where mom and dad and the kids all get to go ride together, that sort of thing. That is something that is driven as a community fundamentally will be more powerful to the positive impact of, uh, of motorcycling. Uh, there are also singular products that if we all get behind, we can fundamentally change motorcycling. And one of my favorites, I did, I did a podcast of my own with Ryan McFarland from um, Strider Bikes. He's the founder and, and president of Strider Bikes, which are the little balance bikes that a kid as young as two years old can ride. Um, I cannot think of any other single product that we have access to that can fundamentally and positively affect motorcycle ridership than promoting Strider bikes to the to our, our youngest citizens out there because their spongy little brains are going to be able to absorb balance and leaning a motorcycle in the right direction. That one product can fundamentally get rid of training wheels altogether, which are ridiculous anyway. And bicycling itself in uh, the U.S. is down 21% recently. If bicycling is down 21%, motorcycling is just, it's just a domino effect. I bet that everyone that you know who rides a motorcycle started on a bicycle. And if we lose them at the beginning of that process, it's going to be way harder to get somebody on a motorcycle as they become a young adult. Um, so I think that, uh, those kinds of initiatives absolutely are led by those of us who are enthusiasts on the ground, who are grassroots minded. And, um, you know, I mean, just as a quick example, if I were to bring one person, one new motorcyclist into motorcycling a year, uh, as a, as a single person and say we had 20% success rate. Uh, bringing a friend in, introducing them to motorcycling and getting them into some form of motorcycling, we would not be having the kind of stress that we're having at the OEM level. You mentioned the the dealership model is sort of outmoded and when it comes to manufacturers and what they're producing, because I know with manufacturers, the profit is in those big high-end bikes that the new riders are unable to afford, probably unable to put out the money for, and also unwilling to, you know, they, they don't want to get that big bike, but whatever the case is, that's where the profits are. That's where they're staying. How can we have an effect on that and the dealerships with the outmoded design or, or running of the dealership? It's, it's really intimidating to be a new rider to walk into a motorcycle dealership. And, and the parallel that I made in the report for specific for guys is, uh, you know, if you want to experience that same sort of stress, just go into a department store and try and buy exactly the right red lipstick for your girlfriend or your wife. Cause I, I guarantee you, you're going to get it wrong. There's, you know, you're going to wonder why is this tube $9 and this one's $25 and she's going to say, Oh, that's evening red, not daytime red. And you're like, what the hell is this? You know, I don't get it. And you're afraid to so, ask. Right. And you just feel like an idiot. Right. And so, so to walk into a motorcycle dealership, uh, that's just rows and rows of headlights and handlebars. When you look at a bike like, uh, say, a Suzuki, you know, uh, what well, was called the Savage, I think it's called the S40 now. Um, so a single cylinder, 650cc, very basic, very, you know, uh, standard cruiser. And then you like you start to go up the range into the, the say, the 14 or 1500cc class, um, you know, Suzuki equivalent. They're pretty close. 
as a new rider, they, you know, they kind of look the same, you know, it's got a lot of chrome, it's, you know, big engine. And so why is this one this much money? And this one is that much. And it's just, it's a really difficult uh, mechanism to get in there. So, so dealers, you hit on the fact that dealers and manufacturers ultimately are going to make more money per unit selling the more expensive things. So they want you to ladder up quickly. They want you to get on that S40, keep moving on up the range, and then maybe you'll switch over to buying a Goldwing someday, and then maybe you'll switch over to buying a, you know, whatever. And so the, um, that process of, of churning you through the bottom end of the system to get you up into bigger bikes hurts us because it becomes so intimidating that um, a newbie walks into that shop and eventually they go, you know what, I, I don't think I can handle that big bike, so I'm not even going to take this first step of buying a, you know, a new Rebel 300 or a KTM 390 or whatever else is out there. So the um, we have the dealership environment has to be more welcoming uh, to middleweight riders. You get tired of ha- I've worked at a dealership. I get it. You get tired of having the same conversation about new ridership, about these sorts of things over and over and over again, but it has to be done. It has to be done in a compelling way. It has to be done in a way that is cognizant of new media and new ways of learning like Twitter and and YouTube videos and all that kind of thing. And it has to be done consistently across all the OEMs in terms of language and in terms of recognition of the fears and factors that stop people from, uh, uh, from, you know, continuing on into motorcycling, the Harley Davidson rider training program. Um, I think I read where it's only about 40% of the people who go through the rider training actually purchase a motorcycle. Um, it's either 40 or 60. So, I mean, there's a fall off rate. We've got people who have learned how to ride a bike and maybe they just check the box and say, okay, I can ride a bike and I'll think about buying a bike a little bit later on. Uh, and instead of saying like, well, here you can buy yourself, um, you know, I don't know, the Kimco spade one fifty, for instance, or that new Benelli one thirty five, or like a little tiny, fun, unintimidating motorcycle, uh, and get into it and continue moving on. Uh, the expectation is that you're supposed to step up to a sportster right away, or you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to get on a Dyna or something like that. And that's a quote, real motorcycle. And now you can go out and, and mix it up in traffic. And, uh, so that dealership experience is, um, uh, is fundamental to our success because no matter how good a job a dealer does or an advocate does, or, um, you know, getting a bike placed in the hottest movie in the world, you know, like everyone in Black Panther 2 is riding motorcycles. Awesome. It's not, it, it, we're going to fail at the dealer level by and large, uh, if we don't change the way that we, uh, uh, approach motorcycling for new riders out there. Why should the average rider care? I mean, you know, they've got their bike, they're riding, they're doing what they want to do. What do they care if, if the motorcycle industry even goes for a dump? Uh, you know, they might not, frankly, and it's really easy to, you know, I don't blame them. It's a big problem. And an average rider can say, you know what, I get it. I can, you know, everybody else needs to buy bikes. I got my, you know, two or three motorcycles. I'm going to enjoy it for myself and that's okay. And it's, you know, maybe not everyone's going to get on, uh, this, this thing of, uh, advocacy and, and promoting the category. So if the average rider is going to drop out, um, uh, then they need to understand that, by not 
facilitating growth by not uh, doing the things for uh, the positives in motorcycling. Uh, motorcycles will uh, the development of motorcycles will um, will slow down. Uh, things like, uh, you know, traction control won't filter down into lower ranges of motorcycles. Um, uh, and, and that kind of technological stuff that as an enthusiast, we kind of get a kick out of that's going to go away that if the average guy is not engaged in the conversation, um, about motorcyclist access into parking lots or into, uh, uh, you know, to getting a discount on toll roads and things like that, then the, uh, then the cost of being in the category is going to continue to ride. If the average rider doesn't care about new riders coming in, that they're going to be paying more in insurance and that sort of thing. So this is really a case of a rising tide raises all boats. And it's easy to choose to not care. If you're the kind of rider who shoots right past somebody who's having trouble on the side of the road on their motorcycle and you don't even have a second thought about it, then you're probably in that category of I just care about myself. I don't really care about other riders out there. But if you're if that little tickle of man, maybe I should pull over and 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 see if they're doing okay, or if you at least give them a thumbs up and look for that eye contact and get a thumbs up back and understand okay they're doing all right, then then you're the person who should care enough about the future of motorcycling to understand that all these little uh, voices and how you vote with your dollars and with your activity that ultimately can increase motorcycling. And, um, um, the more people we have riding, gosh, the happier the world's going to be. So just as in a sort of a handful of tips, what can the average rider do? What should they be doing? I think they should educate themselves on local training initiatives. I think they should also challenge local trainers to make training more than just here's the functional control of a motorcycle, but to to train in on the on the category of riding. I think it's very important for motorcyclists who get asked a question uh, by a non-rider. Hey, you know, I'm thinking about riding. Or what's this like? To take your own personal blinders off. Uh, you have to say say you're a traditional Harley rider, uh, and somebody asks you about the bike. Don't just take somebody to the Harley Davidson store. Take them over to the Honda place or the Yamaha place because what you may be into may not be what they are into. Uh, and by only showing them one flavor of motorcycling, um, you know perhaps they would eliminate that. So take the blinders off. Open yourself up to different categories of motorcycling. Be welcoming of the Can-Am Spider, the Slingshot, as I mentioned vehicles like Vanderhall, sidecars, trikes, all that, because it all plays into the broader uh, profitability uh, of uh, motorcycling uh, and sustainability of motorcycling. Um, the average guy can also walk into the motorcycle dealership and imagine what it's like to be a newbie rider and to talk to that sales manager, talk to that shop owner. Uh, they will listen to you. You're already a customer and uh, and work through how, you know, can I help facilitate a new rider night at the dealership? Or, you know, will you stay open on a Wednesday night so I can bring in all newbies and let's put all the smaller displacement bikes in one area so we can talk about that. So there's a lot of tactical things uh, that everybody can do um, to help uh, uh, elevate motorcycling. Uh, and if you just challenge yourself to bring one non-rider into a motorcycle dealership and introduce them to motorcycling and the types of little bikes that are uh, that are so fantastic out there, 
and just challenge yourself to do that. Uh, and if enough people do that, then uh, we're going to start seeing more and more friends out there on the road. Well, Robert, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. You know, it's been a real pleasure. I, uh, I appreciate your work. It's a, it's a lot of work to do this sort of thing. And I appreciate the listeners out there who, uh, um, who maybe heard a little something that, uh, that sparks them to, uh, to bring somebody new into this great sport of motorcycling. I've been speaking with Robert Pandya. We've got a link to his website so you can find out more about the Give a Shift initiative in the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, to you, the listener. Thank you very much. If you like what we're doing, you want to help us out, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We have a bunch of different ways you can help out. One, you could just spread the word. That would really help out. Get it out to people who don't know about it already. Maybe they're not podcast listeners, and they need to be made aware that there's podcasts out there. I mean, there's lots of great ones, but that would help out. The other way is uh, click on the support button, and we have Patreon, where you can sign up for a monthly um, support payment where it comes out each month and anything from the cup of coffee on up from there <laughs> and anything $10 or more for a direct support payment will get you a sticker sent back at you uh, and so will the patron as well um, anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our raw show at the start of the raw show so anyway you'd like to do it we'd certainly appreciate it thank you very much and don't forget about our other show called ARR Raw which comes out once a month we just had an episode come out a double episode actually to make up for the last month that we missed it in long story but in any case drop by the website and you can see a link on the website from there remember it's a separate show so you have to subscribe separately my name is Jim Martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike see you next week I'm Steph Jevons from One Step Beyond and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio